and welcome to Should I Stay or Should I Go? The podcast providing you with expert career insight and advice from senior people in the fields of insurance and risk management to help you make the right career decisions. Hosted by founder and managing partner of Key Strategies LLC, Mike Tenenbaum. Featuring interviews with those at the top of their game, each podcast explores topical issues coupled with specialist guidance on making your next move in the corporate risk management, insurance brokerage, and the insurance carrier sectors. A seasoned recruiter, Mike Tenenbaum has over 30 years of experience in sourcing top insurance and risk management talent for world-class Fortune 500 companies throughout the US. This experience makes your host the perfect person to kickstart the conversations that will give you the wisdom you need to decide, should I stay or should I go? We're here live at the RIMS New York office, where I was fortunate to catch up with Chris Mandel, who is uh, in town to teach a, uh, an ERM workshop. And uh, Chris, thanks for making some time to be on the show. You bet, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you, as always. Yeah, we've, uh, we've known each other for quite a while. And uh, it's, you know, you were one of the first people I thought of when I thought about, you know, setting up my podcast show. And uh, I'm just, uh, I'm glad that we're able to do this. Um, we tried doing this before, but I had a little technical glitch. So uh, I'm happy to have the chance to run through it again with you. So Chris, a quick uh, intro. So you, um, you've been in this field for quite a while. You've had a number of different jobs, got your start at Liberty Mutual right. in claims right. and uh, progressed into brokerage. And, uh, and we just won't reference the years, okay? <laughs> And uh, so you worked for Marsh for a bit mm-hmm. and ran through risk management positions at major corporations such as uh, PepsiCo. And I think I met you, you were with the American Red Cross, actually. Right. You placed me at PepsiCo. Yes. Yes, I remember. I remember. And I remember talking to uh, my client at PepsiCo, by the way, about that. And when I introduced you to them, uh, they looked at your resume and they said, well, you know, you understand what PepsiCo is and you understand how global we are and and how complex we are. And you're presenting someone who works for the American Red Cross. (laughs) So it has been a bit of a oxymoron of sorts. But how did you answer that question? So I, I said, so you're wondering what I saw in Chris that would lead me to believe that he could be successful at PepsiCo. And so what I talked to them about at the time, I remember very clearly because for me, it was a big risk. I, I felt, you know, every referral I make to any company is a, is a big personal risk. But in that particular case, um, my thoughts were that the American Red Cross was a very complex organization, more complex, way more complex than people realized. Right. And when we had talked about the different things that you had to do to be successful at the Red Cross and how you promoted risk management there, I really felt that you had the kind of background that would be successful at PepsiCo. And, uh, and my client, fortunately, was um, very open to considering people with different types of backgrounds. And, and I think uh, they were glad that they did. And, uh, and I think you were as well. Very much. I mean, you know, that was actually that great segue out of a somewhat career-limiting world of the nonprofits, you know, as good as it was to work for them. That was when Elizabeth Dole was president. And you're right, it was a very complex organization. They took a big risk on me, frankly, at Red Cross because, you know, among other things, they had pretty sophisticated medical malpractice exposures through their blood banking business, 
which was going through the AIDS crisis at the time and the contamination of the blood supply. And they had a fairly mature, sophisticated uh, Bermuda-based captive that I was allowed to run, and I could barely spell captives at the time. So, uh, you know, I think it was a great learning ground, frankly. And 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 I always was I always marveled at the fact that PepsiCo was willing to take somebody from nonprofits. But hey, you made the argument and they bought it, so good for you. <laughs> well, you backed me up on that, so I thank you for that. But I yeah. just assumed that you you know you didn't have any other candidates, so I was it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who told you that, but that is not true, not true at all. But you know, when you think about the um, the, the transition that you had to make in terms of the work environment, the mindset, the energy level, you know, that must have been quite an adjustment for you. It wasn't, it wasn't in the sense that, you know, it was a division of PepsiCo in Louisville, Kentucky. So it wasn't exactly the same environment as Pepsi Corporate and Purchase New York at the time. I was coming out of a fairly uh, stressful home environment being that we lived in, you know, the Washington DC area for a long time. And we're becoming increasingly unhappy with it, you know, for a lot of different reasons I won't go into. But so we thought moving to Louisville, Kentucky was an awesome thing. And it did turn out to be an awesome thing. So that ameliorated any issues related to moving into a more go-go culture, which PepsiCo was and I'm sure still is, somewhat mitigated by the fact that it was the restaurant group, um, although they were subject to the same cultural you know, characteristics as, as Frito-Lay and Pepsi-Cola. But you'll remember Tom Briggs was the hiring authority. I was recommended by Chris Duncan, who was, was the guy I was replacing. And, um, you know, having been so eagerly accepted and validated by both of them, it, it made the transition a whole lot easier. But, you know, it's like every job I've had. It was an awesome learning experience because it was a new industry, new approach to risk, notwithstanding the fact that it was still more traditional risk, just like the prior two jobs had been. And and so I hadn't really gotten into the ERM and more progressive world until, you know, uh, eight, nine years later. It's interesting to me, you know, every time I work on a job, and, and this is a theme that I talk about a lot on, on my uh uh, on my podcast episodes and every time I talk to a client where, you know, we start out with the conversation, you know, relating to what industry the company is in and then how they feel like they really need someone who has that industry experience in order to be successful. And they really, they, they strongly prefer that someone with that industry experience, but you are an example of somebody who was able to succeed coming out of a completely different environment and a different industry. Yeah. So, so how do you make that transition? How do you become successful and how do you learn the business in order to be, you know, effective? Well, I think your last phrase there was, is the key, you know, learn the business, learn the organization, but you're right. I mean, so not only what we've already mentioned, but my segue to the USAA group in 2001, a diversified financial services was the, in some sense an even bigger leap. And every time it's always been a matter of motivation, wanting to make, you know, broaden my own horizons, learn new things, um, understand a different way of doing business, begin to appreciate the distinctions amongst different cultures. And, you know, that that's a big shift right there. How do they get the work done? What's what is the culture like? And each one has been so different. You know, I talk a lot about in, in a lot about it in this particular course, you know, because we talk about culture and risk culture. We were talking about this afternoon. 
And frankly, you know, the quote PepsiCo restaurants experience was the ultimate because you may remember that four years after I went there, PepsiCo decided to get out of the restaurant business and spun that off into a separate public entity, originally known as Tricon Global Restaurants. And that meant taking four corporate entities of former subsidiaries of PepsiCo and melding them into one. And that meant taking four cultures and melding them into one. And so that doesn't happen quickly. There's a lot of clashes and, and, and stress and all that change, but it's a great learning ground. And, you know, I guess maybe that's what I've thrived on. So building relationships, learning the company and the way they do business, understanding what the governance and risk governance and risk culture is relative to the culture itself. And just more than anything, probably just learning who knows what and where, because so, you can't do the risk job effectively without leveraging your stakeholders. No matter how many people you have in your department, and normally it's not a lot, you got to leverage your stakeholders in order to get the job done well, whether it's the traditional version of the job or whether it's some, you know, progressive ERM, SRM, integrated version, doesn't matter. You know, you can't do it well without the help of those that own the risk. I would imagine that getting the help of those that own the risk is a process as well. Yeah. Because you don't just show up at that door and say, oh, I see that you're the risk owner for this particular risk. They may not even know it. Right. <laughs> That's a whole thing as well, as well. So you have to go about building the, re the right relationships. Yeah. And, you know, in those days, I, I don't even remember thinking about risk owners as much as risk stakeholders. You know, so it was, what's my relationship with legal? What's my relationship with compliance, with, you know, marketing, with other elements of the finance organization? Although at that time, I guess I reported to HR. People risk was huge in PepsiCo. You know, we had 500,000 employees at the time, 15,000 restaurants in 120 countries. I mean, it was, it was the reason why they put risk in HR, at least in, in that company. And later it stayed there because the people risk was so significant. So, you know, everybody owns people risk at the end of the day. But it really became about understanding who the risk stakeholders were and why they were risk stakeholders and how you leverage their expertise in the risk areas that they're responsible for in order to get the broader risk strategy executed. That's really it in a nutshell. But again, that's all based on relationships as well. And trust and helping other people accomplish what they're fundamentally accountable for, and then only secondarily asking them to help you execute a risk strategy. That they, in most cases, would say, well, I got a day job. You know, I'm the head of whatever. You know, and and oh, yeah, I have risk accountability too, helping them understand and enable them to take accountability for th that aspect of risk that should be theirs and they may not have even understood it. And I would imagine also if you're someone that you know, now you, you've been enlightened and you now understand that you own a, a particular risk, so now it must be pretty scary to think about how you were managing that risk and how all of a sudden you've, you've realized that you have this responsibility that you didn't know you had before. And, you know, the process that you go through in your own mind to sort of now uh, pay attention to it and actively manage it. Have you, uh, have you had some experience with people that kind of come to that epiphany? Well, you know, it's better to understand it before it blows up on you, right? Even if you didn't know that you owned it. So in some sense, it's an easy sell with some exceptions. I mean, I've had these interesting conversations that I recount to classes with CEOs and other, 
you know, senior functionaries who have these attitudes about things like risk ownership. And it's funny how it goes down. I mean, I can remember one CEO saying, well, okay, who owns HR risk, Mandel? And I said, well, I guess the head of HR, sir. Uh, well, go tell her that she owns it and make sure it's well managed. And I, and I did. And she said, no, you know, I may be the head of HR, but I can't own all this risk for these, you know, tens of thousands of employees. You know, every supervisor has hiring, firing, reward, training, and discipline accountability for the people that report to them. And that's true. And that's a good example of one of those enterprise level risks that you can't just have one owner for, even if the boss says, I just want, as he did, he said, literally, I just want one throat to choke mm. for a risk. So it's got to be one person. So, you know, it, it, it worked itself out, but it is why in some of those more enterprise wide risks that have lots of tentacles to them, it's hard to get people to take the accountability that's required. And it requires, you know, constant vigilance to make sure that it does get properly managed. So just taking that example of HR risk, you know, so here you have this person who oversees an organization and, and you know, she's saying that there's these tens of thousands of employees and I have all these managers and supervisors that are doing all these things that could work out or not work out in any particular instance. How, do, how should I be responsible for that? And I would think that one of the answers is, well, you know, gee, you, there's, this is a good time for a good strategy session and to get everybody together and kind of talking about what this risk really means and how each person plays a role in managing that risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from an enterprise risk standpoint, that's, that's sort of like, you know, serving it up. It is, you know, and actually one of the students in the class today where we were talking about this subject made a good point about it. Well, doesn't that person, that EVP of HR in that case, own the policy and practices and processes that relate to those five things, hiring, firing, you know, rewarding, training, and disciplining? And the answer is yes. And I think that's where the argument is easy. You know, that's where the buck it has to stop on people risk, whatever it is. You know, and of course, you know, there's going to be accountability for things like attrition rates and whether or not they're within boundary and things like that. But you're absolutely right. And since enterprise level risks do tend to be more strategic in nature, you have to have those collaborative conversations with not just people like her in that example, but other functionaries that handle pieces of the pie underneath them, you know, that will be the effectively the ones that say this is the set of controls that mitigates the hiring risk. This is the controls we agree mitigate the disciplining risk and et cetera. And that all dovetails into policy and practices so that the supervisor and, you know, the food chain who has the three people reporting to them may be the hiring authority and may be the firing authority understands, you know, what the rules of the road are and the fact that we need to do this consistently to stay out of legal trouble. Yeah, so the, the doing it consistently to me relates to having the clear message, having the communication, the collaboration, and getting everybody all tuned in. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the part that I see and, and, and I hear about it as a recruiter, right? You know, when there's a breakdown in that strategy or that communication, you know, I'm the guy who gets the phone call mm -hmm. saying, hey, you know, this is broken here. You know, this is not looking good for me. My management doesn't really have their act together or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they want to now be you know, um, somewhere else. And so, you know, you put me here now, get me out. <laughs> you know, fortunately I don't get too many of those phone calls, but I, I do get the phone calls from people who are frustrated 
uh, when they work for large companies and they feel like there's a breakdown in the strategy or the communication or, or what have you. Pretty dynamic thing that is constantly moving and changing. And so um, it's like another thing I presented here today that I talk about a lot, and that is that strategic risks by virtue of the research done on them are the most destructive risks. And yet they're the hardest to get your arms around, the hardest to control, the hardest to manage generally, even finding owners for, you know, maybe because, you know, people are not comfortable with that amorphous nature of those things. And yet if they are the most destructive and the evidence suggests that they are, then they deserve the most attention and time. Well, human nature being what it is, you know, if it's if it's hard to understand and hard to get your hands around and, and hard to be accountable for it, then chances are there's going to be a lot of resistance. Yeah. Yeah. That's no uh, question. That's just the way it goes. So, you, you know, know I, the only trouble with the world is the humans that are in it. Yeah. I, I always say. Right. 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 <laughs> it would be a great place except for the people. Right? <laughs> so I was just curious, though, um, when uh, when you're thinking about the roles that you've had as a senior level strategic risk manager and strategic risk advisor, if you will. Sometimes when I see job descriptions, they involve ERM, but they also involve insurance. And I see, you know, I'll call them hybrid kinds of roles where you have dual responsibility. Mm -hmm. And to me, it seems that if you're in this very large organization, given what you just said about how difficult it is to manage these strategic risks, would it not or does it not make sense to separate that out and have a, an ERM person just be more of a strategic focused risk manager and have another person who is more of an insurance focused risk manager? Well, some do. I heard that today from a few of the people here where they say, I've got this traditional stuff, but ERM is over here under another leader. And then others that say, I got them both. And in, you know, my primary experience where I had that broader accountability, we treated it as, well, we labeled it an ERM center of excellence. But in effect, there were two centers of excellence underneath it. One was really the corporate insurance function, and the other was the ERM function. And there were different uh, people involved in each. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's like I say, not to denigrate insurance and traditional risk, but, I mean, insurance is just one type of mitigation strategy. It's all it is. And frankly, in the case of strategic risk, because it rarely applies – it requires a whole set of uh, treatment alternatives that have nothing to do with insurance. So because insurance tends to be pretty highly technical and, and specifically technical that way with people that have to have the technical background to do it well, you, it probably does make sense to bifurcate it, you know, and, you know, keep it, you know, separate anyway, maybe under the same umbrella. But, you know, every organization I've ever been with has a different organizational approach and structure to how these things get overseen and, and managed. And um, it just seems to be more aligned with the way the corporate or the organization does other business, as opposed to what any risk leader might think is ideal. And we've all got our own opinions about that. And there's plenty, plenty of big pro high profile risk leaders, friends of mine that would say, I don't want to have a thing to do with enterprise risk management. I got my hands full with, you know, this insurance related stuff. And I'm good with that. They pay me well. I've been doing it for a long time with a lot of success. It's fun. Um, I would say for them, it's probably become a bit of a comfort zone. Um, but that's okay. You know, whatever floats your boat. So I think it's to an organization how this stuff gets done. 
Yeah, that makes sense to me because uh, definitely what works in one organization doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work in another organization. Right. So along those lines, um, I get the question a lot, and I'm curious what you think about this. Where should risk management report into? Well, I mean, again, this is like we just kind of agreed. It, it's it's organizational specific. So PepsiCo, it, it was HR, even at the top. So it wasn't just the restaurants. Up at the top, they reported to HR when I was there. It may still, I think ERM may report to finance, though, if I remember correctly. And that ERM at PepsiCo emerged years later, well after I left. At Sedgwick, it reports to, um, it was general counsel, now it's CFO. Most of my jobs, it's been some element of finance a treasurer, a CFO. Um, and there's a lot of logic behind that. But you could argue that about a lot of things, right? Because everything flows out to be financial at the end of the day. I don't know that there is one right place. And that's unfortunate because that leaves the discipline feeling like they're kind of floating and that they're at the whim of whoever's opinion might be asked about it in any reorganization, which, you know, they happen all the time, right? And so it's almost more about the level of interest. So if it's the general counsel that seems to care more and understand better what you do, then I would be an advocate for that. If that's the head of HR, then so be it. If that's the COO, then so be it. I'd rather be in a place where those two things are true than trying to make an argument for some artificial placement of the function where you're not going to have the, the support from the boss who doesn't seem to understand it and or care about it enough to make it a job that you'd have fun doing. So that's a really good point. I would say, you know, in addition to having someone who actually is invested in risk management and really is going to be supportive of it, it also, I think, has to be somebody who's going to be very influential in the organization. Because, you know, in what you do, um, there will come a point in time when someone's going to push back. You don't just, you know, automatically snap your fingers and now everybody gets in line and they're tuned into risk management and they follow your lead. They're going to need, you're going to need some support from your senior level management. And what I hear about a lot is that the key is the person that, that the risk person reports to has to be that influential, um, what's the word? Um, well, they, the one we talked about today is, and I, I use the term risk champion, you know, I mean, they may not like that. But influencing um, capability is important. We are grading different positions on influence level today based on their opinions and their own experiences. So I think those two aspects are, are pretty critical because um, you do run across all kinds of political landmines in the risk business, in my experience. Some can be fatal if you're not, if you're not careful. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So when you think about sort of the career track of someone who wants to be an enterprise risk manager at whatever level that might be. Um, in your opinion, is there kind of an ideal track that somebody would want to follow if they're coming out of school? Let's say they've got a degree in risk management or maybe they've got a degree in finance and they get into the insurance business. Well, you know, I, I've used the adage a lot, the old story that I still like. Don't know whether it's still true or not, but you know, you may remember that GE was known for running people through the audit function who were hypos, you know, high potentials, mm -hmm. um, because they thought that that was the best way to get them exposure to as many lines of business as possible if they were going to be a, a hypo general manager, you know, rising through the ranks. And I thought, you know, that's great. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I don't have any reason to say that risk management as a kind of a corollary function couldn't produce the same perspective, meaning that I always thought the best people that represented my interests within business segments 
whether they were business units or functions, were people that understood most what was going on within that segment of the business. And, and so I call them kind of little COO types, you know, who knew what was going on in there, understood the, how they make money, how they get the work done, therefore should understand the risk profile of that subset of the business and would be the best people to know that. So I always encourage, for example, the interns that I hired over the years to get out into the business and get other non-risk jobs, make, you know, make the rounds, so to speak, uh, getting exposure to how the company makes money if it's for profit how it does its work. And then if you want to come back, we can certainly chart a career path that allows that. And maybe it'll work or maybe it won't. But I think that risk management is a great place to learn the business. And it's only through, you know, cooperative and collaborative arrangements with those business segments where you can get people really good exposure to what they need to know to be truly effective as a risk leader at the end of the day. Yeah, those are all great points. I totally agree with that. You know, learning the business and really understanding how the business gets done is one of the, I think, one of the great benefits of being in risk management. So, um, great. So, um, moving on from your, uh, we'll call it if we can, your traditional risk management career, where, you know, you went from the American Red Cross to PepsiCo to USAA, um, you ended up then starting your own consulting firm. Yeah, I actually started it when I was still at USAA, and it was really just a way for me um, to do things on my own time, you know, that weren't so much consulting as just other elements of staying connected to the external risk world, you know, primarily teaching and writing, you know. So I had, I've had columns in trade magazines since 96 when Catherine McIntyre first asked me to write the Ask a Risk Manager column. And, you know, that's been helpful, you know, all along. And, you know, when I have done very limited consulting gigs, it's been under that umbrella, you know, where I can say that because I teach it, because I've stayed connected to it, I get it, you know, and I can bring the my experience to the table uh, on a very, very, very part-time basis, you know, where I can say, help other people solve problems by bringing the broader network of who I know to the table, you know, to maybe do full-blown engagements that I'm just overseeing. That's kind of been the mode of that consulting thing that I started back about 2004 or so. And, uh, and you know, maybe one day it'll be full-time. I don't know. You know, when I left uh, USAA in 10, that was my focus, full-time consulting. And, you know, as I told Dave North when he hired me, I said, you know, this is a slog, you know, competing against the big boys who have all the marketing money and you know, it became a real challenge. And so it wasn't hard for me to decide, you know, I don't know that I want to do this full time at this stage of my career. And, uh, you know, now I'm where I am, have been for seven years, having fun running an institute and doing say, more strategic things. But So, so your, your, uh, your position now, you have a uh, Sedgwick title of senior vice president, mm -hmm. and then you have a director title of the Sedgwick Institute. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about what you're doing there. Yeah. So uh, like I say, I was consulting full time, you know, for th three years or so after leaving USAA, took early retirement in 10. And I thought, okay, let's just see how this goes. And, you know, again, I used not a, I used a model where I used my global network to bring people to the table for engagement purposes rather than hiring employees and have that embedded expense. And it was fine. I mean, we're having fun, but you know, it wasn't any way to get rich. And, you know, I just, called Dave North one day because I knew him and said, hey, you know, this is going on over here. I need your opinion. He said, 
come on down to Memphis. And the next thing I know, you know, he was asking me to join his team in something that was fairly, you know, undescribed, you know. He said, well, bring in, you know, what title you want to use. I made it up, you know, and he said, we'll point you at senior vice president level. Here's the deal. I, I decided to do it and uh, give that consulting piece up. Really being able to chart my course for using my brand, it's kind of the way I looked at it, to drive thought leadership, to help them think through issues that could allow them to grow, um, whether that was who to you know consider acquiring or, you know, what products and services could we get into that could expand our horizons to primarily representing their interest in the industry by sitting on boards and advisory boards of things they had interests in, uh, such as, for example, the Association of Responsible Alternatives for Work Comp in Texas. Um, a client came to us and said, hey, subject needs to be at the table. What do you think? I took it to the CEO and he goes, what do you think? I did the due diligence and you know, seven years later, we're still supporting that effort. And so that was a part of it. But the biggest part of it has been, you know, being the, a, in some sense, almost an ambassador to the industry for the company, speaking about and writing about the things that are the cutting edge things going on, some of which directly affect, affect the Cedric business model, some more indirect because they're the interests of our clients, the risk managers of the world, even if we don't sell something to that directly. That's changing a bit, but that was the original idea. And uh, some of it was research-based. Became running an institute three years ago. Yeah, no, four years ago this March. Dave North conceived the idea of let's stand up a, what he called a virtual institute. And the idea was to move what I was doing under there as a bit of an umbrella and then kind of promote thought leadership under that umbrella, both inside and outside the company, to, as he put it, you know, solve problems that nobody else was focused on or weren't successful in solving and bringing new ideas to the business and solving problems that uh, needed solutions. So that's what I've been doing for seven years. And so, you know, I haven't been a risk manager for that period of time, but very closely connected to it by virtue of all that stuff, including what happened here today at RIMS and the CRM course. So I'm listening to you talk about all the different things that you're involved in. And, you know, to me, it sounds really interesting to kind of go through your, your background from claims to brokerage to consulting to risk management. And now the culmination of all of those things. And, you know, you're keeping your finger on the pulse of the industry. So, you know, you're, you're able to impart some wisdom to people who are uh, trying to figure things out still for their own career. And, uh, and then on behalf of Cedric, I mean... Kudos to Dave North to, uh, to bring you in and, and create a role that's so unconventional. I don't know of any other roles like that, frankly, yeah. where, you know, you get to be involved in the industry. Um, you're staying connected. You're doing your teaching. Um, I've seen you do some writing as well. And, um, and, and all for the benefit of the, of the overall brand of risk management is how I would put it. Yeah. And, you know, you do a lot for RIMS as well. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just very interesting to see people um, evolve through their career into, uh, into a role like this. It's just, uh, it's great. Well, it is rare, and I've been blessed by that decision, that offer, that decision to accept it. And, you know, it's not that it'll stay the same. Um, the business changes. We're making acquisitions, you know, with the latest one just a month old. <laughs> so, I mean, every time you do that, pieces on the chessboard move around. 
the needs of the company change, how the Institute's mission is defined will maybe morph a little bit. We're talking now about how can we focus on just a half dozen subjects, you know, that are particularly acutely needing some attention because of the industry we operate in and bring the right subject matter experts to the table with the Institute's imprimatur on it, raising a level of, of significance to dealing with those issues with a different set of rigor than maybe in the past. And then from there, maybe taking a course of exploiting that topic through speaking and other writing that supports a white paper, for example, even webinars and podcast interviews and who knows what else it could be. That's kind of the track we're on at the moment. Nice. Well, podcast interviews, that's a good idea. It is, yeah. I've actually been doing those, as you may recall, uh, for the Institute for the last four years. And you can go on the Institute website at cedricinstitute.com and see the many people that I've interviewed. Yes, yes. You've had some nice guests, which I hope to have on my show one day. That's great. So, you know, talking about changes in the industry, um, probably the last thing I just want to cover uh, tonight is uh, the whole concept of insure tech. Mm. and artificial intelligence and how you feel like that's going to impact the the insurance industry and and frankly you know companies like Sedgwick that have such great volumes of data and how risk managers can kind of get their heads around um, what their life is going to be like it's funny you mention that because I've been talking with uh, our chief claim officer lately about a number of things to what I just mentioned and one of those was making a lot of these research efforts and white papers data, underpinned, if you will, because we do have a ton of data. And frankly, you know, one of the first things Dave asked me to do in 2013 was to make the rounds with the top 100 clients, see what was on their minds. And I did. And you know what the number one issue was almost to a person was you got a ton of data. We need you to use it more effectively for our benefit. And, you know, we're still working on that as most people are. But I think to your point about InsureTech and the tools that are coming out of it, like artificial intelligence and machine learning and the like, I've already seen the evidence. It's pretty freaking amazing what's being done with data that nobody could have even conceived of a few years ago. And, you know, whether it's now prescriptive analytics that seems to have evolved from predictive, um, which talks more about, okay, you've predicted something. Now, what are you going to do about it? What are the specific protocols you're going to put in place? I think it's going to change everything. Uh, AI has so much potential for good and for bad, I might add. So the, the, the real issue with AI, in my mind, is keeping it for the good and controlling it, you know. And so in the insure tech world, as you may recall, I've got a, a connection to uh, Innovator's Edge, which was started by my friend uh, Dave Diaz, the founder of ITL. and uh, Insurance Thought Leaders. InsuranceThoughtLeadership.com. And frankly, uh, they're tracking billions of dollars of venture capital that are into thousands of insure techs, most of which will probably fail, you know, because of just the failure rate of startups, right? I mean, it's true in that sector as it is everywhere else. But the ones that I've gotten a few close looks at, pretty impressive stuff, you know. Can they commoditize it? Monetize it, I guess, is the right word. That remains to be seen. But if it can do what I've seen a few of them be able to do with artificial intelligence in particular, I think it has a huge future to change the entire uh, dynamics of how risk gets managed in the future. And I've been talking to risk managers in that way, saying, you have no idea what's coming. And if you're in a progressive version of this discipline, you're going to have tools at your disposal that you can't even imagine today. 
they're going to get you ahead of, say, those strategic risks we were talking about that don't lend themselves to traditional treatment or mitigation techniques and don't have other solutions. But those solutions in many cases are coming. Yeah, definitely. And it is going to really change the way risk managers think about their jobs and the way the vendors like Cedric provide services to those risk managers. Right. There is a big downside, though, potential, or let's call it an opportunity. And that is that if we agree that InsurTech is, in fact, hey, by definition, no pun intended, all about technology and its capabilities to help solve problems, then what are risk leaders of the future need to do, or well, risk leaders of today and the future, they need to understand technology a whole lot better than they have, myself included. You know, whenever I had a tech question, I'd go to the CTO. You know, so I don't ascribe to be any kind of tech expert. I can barely, you know, manage my Office 365 account. Um, but the truth is, they're going to have to be more adept at technology and its kind of intricacies and what's flowing from that world today that will change everything tomorrow. I refer to it as, a, as in the broader context as the direct impact on the discipline being the digitization of risk. At the end of the day, everything will be digitized. That implies technological connection. That implies that risk managers need to understand how technology is going to affect their lives, is affecting their lives, and will more so in the future when it subsumes everything we do, both work-related and personally. So that's huge. Yeah, I guess, you know, it also um, puts new emphasis on the chief information security officer role and the chief technology officer role and how the risk manager needs to be integrated with those folks. Yeah, well, they're just, you know, like we were talking today, just one of many key risk stakeholders, you know, that, as I just described, probably need priority attention. Yeah, Definitely. Sounds that way. Well, listen, Chris, uh, it's been great talking with you again, Likewise. as always, and uh, I appreciate your time, and uh, and I look forward to having you back another time. We'll follow up and maybe in a year, and we'll see what InsureTech looks like then. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Brought to you by Key Strategies, LLC, the U.S. Insurance and Risk Management Recruitment Specialists. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. And if you have any specific career-related questions, please post them or send an email directly to Mike at mtenenbaum at keystrategies.com. He may even answer your question on the show. When you subscribe, you'll also get notifications of when the next episode is available. Hope you join us next time. Bye.